Thank you so much. My name is Tom, and I'm on staff here at Calvary. If we haven't met and you're new, I'd love to meet you. I've been away for uh, three months on a sabbatical, and today is my first morning back. Glad to be with you here and in Classic. Um, boy, what a privilege it is. I'm so grateful to this church and for the vision of having a season for pastoral leaders to be refreshed and retooled and filled. Sabbatical is a Sabbath rest. And over the last three months, um, I really felt like I was able to shut it down, uh, turn it off, and then reboot. And I'm so thankful for that privilege to have done that um, and thankful for this church. Thankful for all the people who helped make things happen here for John and Perry as they led from the pulpit most weeks and others who have helped make the ministry happen here over the last three months. Um, it's great to be back, though. Uh, it's designed to be a time of refreshment, and I felt like the Lord did refresh us. And um, I had a vision that sabbatical would be a time for me to focus on my own personal life, my marriage, and um, the next season of my life um, until the Lord returns or I croak. So um, that's what we did. And among the things I'm thankful for, I came out of sabbatical thinking of about the things I love most after Christ, my Savior. I'm so grateful for Lucy. And one of the focuses of our sabbatical was to be together, think about our marriage, reflect on 38 years, and what is the next season of our marriage going to be like. To be a pastor uh, requires a partner who is uh, supportive and loving. And I could not do what I do without her, consistently loving, faithfully. Uh, being there. So we celebrated 38 years, and we happened to be in the Redwood Forest when that happened. And it was a marvelous picture of uh, stability, and that's what we pray for for ourselves. The other thing I know I love is the church. I love the church. Jesus Christ said, uh, he loves the church, and he died for the church, gave himself up for the church, that he might present a group of people who know him, love him, follow him. And the highest calling, I think, is to be about the things that Jesus is about. Now, we can't all um, lead a church, but we're all part of a church, and we, I, I just know that I love the church. And thirdly, I love this church. I'm, I'm, I love you. And I missed you, especially for the first two weeks. Um, and then I didn't think about you for a, for a while on purpose. But like the last Sunday I was with you was uh, June 30th when we had our 130-year celebration. And that was such an outstanding day, one of the greatest days that I could ever remember being a part of this organization. And then I was gone. I didn't have anybody to talk to about what a great day that was. Um, and then over the last three or four weeks, I've been thinking, okay, I can't wait to get back here to Calvary. So I've been anxious to preach. Um, I, I will admit to having had a few dreams at night that I forgot how to preach, um, and soon we'll know. But why don't you grab your Bible, because we're in this beautiful study in the book of Exodus, and if you have your Bible, open there to Exodus chapter 12. And uh, we're going to open the Word of God, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and teach us through the Word of God. And my prayer for us this morning is that hearing the Word of God will result in faith 
in your heart. And faith in your heart will lead you to worship in spirit and truth. And faith in your heart will lead you to live your life on purpose for God and His glory. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. In order for us to to grow in faith, we have to believe the things that God has said in His Word. And when you believe what God says, then our hearts are changed to be worshipers and our hearts are changed to live in a way that is for the glory of God. So let's pray before we read that the Holy Spirit will speak to us. Perhaps you're here today and there are some obstacles in your life that must be overcome in order for you to believe in God. That's what we want to pray that the Holy Spirit will speak to all of us in the way He knows we need to hear. So let's pray together. Your word is truth, Father. These things written for us in the Old Testament are examples for us to believe in your power, your grace, your love, your severity, and your mercy. And we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, beyond any human ability, what would occur here today would be the listening of open hearts to the very voice of God. So please come to us now and let the words of Scripture open us up to be receptive hearers and willing doers of everything that you would prompt in us today. For every obstacle in our life that must be overcome, we pray that the power of the Holy Spirit will be in us, working among us. For all of the sins that we have committed in this last week and beyond, we pray for mercy to cover and a willingness on our part to confess those sins and believe that Jesus is a forgiving Savior. And then we ask our Father that the truth of God will come and give us instructions for the way we ought to live in this day so far removed from the events of the Exodus. This is what we pray for, for the glory of God, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all come to the maturity that you first envisioned when you sent Jesus to the cross. In the name of our Savior, we all pray together. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, Exodus chapter 12. My hope today is that we will do a, a fairly rapid retelling and then some implications and some applications of this ancient narrative. The Exodus is narrowly thought to be that event in the history of God's dealing with Israel in which He delivers them from Egypt and He takes them across the Red Sea and they enter into the Promised Land. The more broad understanding of the Exodus is the whole sweep of the demonstration of God's righteous judgment against rebellious Egypt in the plagues, the institution of the Passover as the celebration of God's deliverance, His providential movement of two million people out of Egypt across the Red Sea 
into a new land after wandering in the wilderness and then receiving the law and God establishing tabernacle worship and ultimately ending up in the land that God promised. We don't have time to look at all of it, and we've been looking at all parts of it, but one of the important things to understand about the Exodus is that God is working to fulfill an ancient covenant that he made with Abraham when the opening words of that covenant were, I will make of you a great, anybody know? A great nation. But to this point, Israel has not really been a nation. It's been a family of 70 who moved down to Egypt and they lived there for years and years and years. And the family multiplied and then ended up living in Egypt for 430 years, the last 80 or 90 in really object, abject exploitation and slavery. They've really never been a nation. And it is the exodus whereby God is going to take his people and lead them out of Egypt and reconstitute the family of Abraham and make them a great nation beginning with all of the things that he establishes in the exodus experience. They will have a new calendar, they will have a new covenant, they will have a new law, and they will be a new people marked as a nation for the first time. So this morning we're going to look back a little bit more narrowly on the flight of the Israelites out of Egypt, and I want you to understand that the Exodus experience is the greatest redemptive act of God in the Old Testament. And so, after the last plague, which results in the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt, verse 31 of Exodus chapter 12 says that Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night And finally, the one who said, I will not let you go, I will not let you go, I will not let you go, says, everybody, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, go, like get out of here and go and serve the Lord as you said. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And before you go, bless me. It's hard for us to put ourselves back there, but the culmination of all that God had done through the ten plagues had so transformed the heart of a stubborn Pharaoh to say, I will not only let you go, but I need you to bless me lest I die like my firstborn son. We're going to be dead unless you bless us. The last time an Israelite blessed an Egyptian Pharaoh was when Jacob, Joseph's father, blessed the Pharaoh that Joseph served in Genesis chapter 47. But Pharaoh, in this case, has a tremendous change of heart, devastated by all that God had done. In verse 33, says the Egyptians were so urgent to send them out, assuming that they were going to die. And then in verse 35, the people of Israel had done as Moses had told them, and they had asked the Egyptians for silver and for gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked for. Thus, they plundered the Egyptian. This wasn't theft. It wasn't deceit. It was that God had so worked, and you see these words, so that the Lord gave the people favor. It was what the Lord was doing, that his righteous judgment had come to such a way that it had broken the hearts of the people that they basically said, here, take my gold, take my silver, take my clothes. And that became the resources that Israel needed 
for the wilderness wanderings, reminding us that when God calls you to do something, He provides what you need. Is that right? When God says, I want you to do this, and you step out and do it, He will provide what you need. That's the theme that God is working here in this exodus in a way that we can't hardly imagine. And so verse 37, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses um, to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And this is the summary picture of the exodus of Israel that some have estimated could be as high as 2 million people who traveled out of Egypt to begin to go on their journey to the promised land. 600,000 men, probably soldiers over the age of 20, and then women and children. And this other contingent of people who were servants or other Semites who were going to be with them and they were going to travel, they, they were not really a part of the Jewish family, but they probably took the opportunity to get out while the getting was good, and they went. Now, this is an amazing traveling band, and we haven't time to talk about all of the things related to this exit, but the time of Israel, verse 40 says, was 430 years in the land of Egypt, and God was watching over them as they went. And then verse 12 summarizes the exodus with this final word from chapter 12 uh, and verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses. And on that very day, the Lord brought his people out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. They're out. Not simple, though, to move two million people out of Egypt. But there they began to travel. And uh, verse 3 of chapter 13, Moses said to the people... You're to remember this day which you, in which you came out, that's exited, since you exited out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's read the last line together. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. Let's say it better together. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. By a strong hand the Lord brought you out. And four times in chapter 13 you see this phrase. Who delivered Israel from Egypt? The Lord did. By a strong and mighty hand, He led them out. And Moses wants the people to know absolutely with, with certainty and conviction that what happened in Egypt was the hand of God, and they absolutely knew it. And that began um, an institution of families telling next generations, when your children come to you, the first generation will say, I was in Egypt, and God brought me out by His strong and mighty hand. Next generations are going to say, our father was in Egypt, our mother was in Egypt, and the Lord brought them out. And the next generation is going to say, our grandfolks were in Egypt, and the Lord brought them out. And what happens in the retelling of his story and the experience of being led by God personally when you're retelling it generation to generation to generation. What happens? It loses a little bit of its fervency. 
So God gave institutions celebrations to keep alive the memory. It was unleavened bread. It was the dedication of the firstborn. These things which would be practiced by Israel in order to try to keep alive that we were once in slavery, but God by His mighty hand delivered us. By His mighty right hand, He delivered me. He delivered my dad. He delivered my grandpa. He delivered my great-grandpa. And then you can imagine a generation says, I don't know, something happened back there. And here we are today. And many of us can think about family situations in our own lives where we think, well, I know my grandmother was a devout woman. And it is the keeping of the, the ceremonies and the festivals and the leavened bread and all of these things that are meant to keep alive if by faith we remember what happened there. It was God's mighty, strong right arm, His hand that was powerful that led them out. Now in verse 17 of chapter 13, Pharaoh let the people go. And God didn't want to lead them the most direct way. If we can have the map, Philip, thank you you'll see on the map that the most direct way to get to the promised land would have been to leave here and travel right along the sea. But who lived there? Philistines lived there. And God said, people aren't ready for war yet. So we're going to go some way down here, and it's not absolutely certain which way or where these cities are, if they're the same, and there are cities mentioned in the text this morning. But it was somewhere like this to travel down and then cross the Red Sea and end up in the wilderness down here. That's the travel plan. And God led the people around the way of the wilderness, verse 18 says, and the people went up to the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph. In verse 21, you'll see the Lord went before them in a pillar of fire, a cloud, to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. It didn't depart from them at all, never departed from the people. So God's going before them in this miraculous manifestation of the power of God before them to lead them. Why? God had been just demonstrating how powerful, how absolutely other He is. And in order for the people to move in a new direction to a place they had not been, they needed a manifestation, a visible presence of the invisible God. And so God gives them this pillar of fire to lead them. Guide them by the day, protect them, and give them light by night. It was the visible sign of a transcendent God who wanted to say, Emmanuel, I am with you, and I will be with you in front, and I will protect you, and I'll give you all that you need as you go. And so the Lord said to Moses, verse chapter 14, tell the people to turn back. And so somewhere they go, and they, they start to these two cities, uh, Ramesses and Succoth, and then they go down to some other cities that are mentioned in our text, and they end up getting pinned in this little place somewhere along the Red Sea where the only alternative is the sea behind them and Egypt, I'm sorry, the sea in front of them and Egypt behind them. And sure enough, um, Pharaoh is going to change his mind. And God says, 
in verse 3, that Pharaoh will say to the people, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're sort of lost. In verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all his host. And the Egyptians will what? They're going to know that I'm the Lord. Wait, they need another sign? Yeah, they, they will know that I'm the Lord. And so they did. They stayed right there. Verse 10 tells us that Pharaoh drew near. He changed his mind. He doubles down. It's hard to imagine that Pharaoh, after all he's been through, would learn that the Israelites have gone, two million of them, they've gone around and somehow word got back to him that they've landed somewhere near the Red Sea and they're sort of hemmed in in the wilderness. That just stirs up Pharaoh's heart and says, How, why have we let them go? We need to go get them. Do any of you say, that doesn't seem rational for all that he's been through. But sin is not rational. Sin is is delusional and rational, and unrestrained sin leads to destruction. So Pharaoh mounts up his chariots, he gets 600 of them, and they head out to go after them, and um, they're on their way. And verse 10 says that Pharaoh drew near, and the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared. Now, you've got to love what they say in verse 11. And the children of Israel cried out, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Man, stinks being a leader, doesn't it? You've got to imagine this. Is this not what we said to you when we were in Egypt? Just Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And so marks the beginning of the second guessing and the complaining of the people of Israel. Better to be a living slave than a dead pilgrim. That was in their mind. Now Moses responds to them and He says in verse 13, maybe we should read this out loud together. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have have only to be silent. I love the way the message puts it. The Lord will do the battle for you, and you... Shut up. That's how Eugene Peterson translates it. And you, shut up. You be still. You need to see what God's going to do with his strong and mighty arm. And he invokes them to believe in God and to trust in him. And so Moses is told by the Lord to lift up his staff and stretch it out and to divide the sea and the sea parts And the children of Israel go through on dry ground. And God is going to harden the hearts of Pharaoh to go into that opened Red Sea, wherever that was. And the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. Moses repeats again in verse 18. And the angel of the Lord was going before the host. And now the cloud of pillar in verse 18 moves from in front 
leading them across the Red Sea to behind them, and the cloud of pillar and fire is between the people of Israel and the Egyptians to protect them because God leads and He protects. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ beside me, Christ above me. When you are in the hand of God, when you are protected by His strong right hand, He is your fortress. That's what He's showing here to Israel. Well, you know the story perhaps, I hope, I have to assume that many of you have heard this often, but the children of Israel travel through the Red Sea on dry ground. They get to the other side and God commands Moses to lift his staff up again and let the waters return and all of the Egyptians perish in the closing back of the Red Sea. I believe that happened. I believe God did that by His strong, mighty hand. Verse 30 says, And the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. And they feared the Lord and they believed the Lord and His servant Moses. Now I love the, Egyptian, the, the Israelites are an example for us how much we see ourselves of, Oh yes, Lord, I believe you. Oh, no, why did this happen? Lord, where are you? Oh, yes, Lord, I believe you. Oh, no, Lord, what? Are you with me? This is our life a little bit. These things were written for our instructions. That by reading them, we might have hope and faith that God has a strong and mighty right hand. And sometimes when God leads us in a new way, and leads us to a, a new place, what he's actually doing is demonstrating his strong right hand. And that doesn't mean you will not have tests of faith that will give you the opportunity to believe God and for him to display his strong and mighty hand, which is exactly what he's doing here. Um, he will get the glory as we trust him in the midst of these circumstances. Now, I said to you that the, the whole narrative of the Exodus is designed to do several things. One is to reconstitute Israel, but it also becomes the greatest redemptive work of God in the Old Testament, and then it begins to be repeated again and again throughout the rest of the Old Testament. This redemptive act influences all the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, that God delivered his people out of Egypt, he relieved them from slavery and was leading them to a promised land, became the basis of everything that God did in Israel, beginning with, for example, Exodus chapter 20. What happens in Exodus chapter 20? The Ten Commandments. So we read in Exodus 20, we're jumping ahead. And God said all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's who I am. That's what I did. And therefore, what? You shall have no other gods. I want, you to, I want to let that sink in. 
God's delivery of his people becomes the basis of so much of the rest of the Old Testament so that God could say, this is who I am, this is what I've done, these are the terms of our agreement. You shall have no other gods before me. Now God can appeal to his role as the creator of the universe. And he could say to us, I created you. I give you life. You're made in my image. So here are the terms of the covenant I make with you. And he does that. But most of what happens in the Old Testament now is rooted on this. I redeemed you from slavery and I called you my own, and I'm delivering you to a new land, therefore, what? Believe me, trust me, obey me. And that, that just becomes the influence throughout all of the Old Testament. In fact, if you read the Psalms, Psalm 77, Psalm 78, Psalm 105, we haven't time to look at them, but each of those Psalms goes back and to say God parted the Red Sea. He delivered us from our enemies. He made us walk through on dry ground. And the people of Israel wrote the Psalms recording the Exodus narrative in order to lead the whole congregation to say, worship God. He has a strong right hand. He delivered us from slavery. We belong to Him. And again and again in the Psalms it says, and so they remembered. And then they forgot. The Psalms are written to lead people to worship God for His deliverance. He saved us. Therefore, we belong to Him. You could read all the prophets. The prophets again and again look at God's work in the Exodus and then call Israel to say, wait, wait, why have you gone away? Here's one from Jeremiah chapter 7. In Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings. That's not what I talked about when I brought them out of Egypt. No, what did I say to them? I gave them this command. Obey my voice. I will be your God. You will be my people. Walk in all the way that I command you, and it will be well with you. That was the point of the Exodus. I'm your God. You're my people. Listen to my voice. Trust my mighty right hand. I will not leave you or forsake you. I will be before you. I will be behind you. I know there'll be times when you say, God, where are you? But I am there. Believe me. Jeremiah continues, but they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsel and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forward. And from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants and prophets to them day after day. And yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. And they did worse than their fathers. Ugh. That's the prophets calling Israel back. You can look all throughout the prophets. And the narrative of the Exodus is there. What about the New Testament? You come to the New Testament and you hear a quotation from the book of Hosea chapter 11, out of Israel I have called my son. 
Who are we talking about now? Oh, when Jesus was born and Herod was going to kill all the young boys in Jerusalem, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to Egypt and he stays in Egypt until Herod is gone. And then Matthew, in writing the Gospel of Matthew, says in reference to Jesus coming back into Jerusalem out of Egypt, out of Egypt I called my son. When Jesus goes to the temptation and Satan is tempting him and he says to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. Where is it that Jesus turns to answer Satan's temptation? It's the Exodus narrative. Man shall not eat by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, the, the Exodus is the greatest redemptive work of God in the Old Testament. But it foreshadows the greatest redemptive work of all time. And what is that? That's the greater Moses. The greater son. It's Jesus. Let me show you one passage from Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took Peter and John, James, and went on up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, his appearance was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, there were two men talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his what? Do you know what Greek word that is? It is transliterated exodas. Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah about his exodas. There are a lot of words he could have used to describe departure, but Luke uses the word exodus of Jesus' departure that is going to take place in Jerusalem. He's going to accomplish an exodus in Jerusalem when he goes to Jerusalem and he dies on the cross and he will he will carry out the greatest deliverance from bondage on the cross and lead a host of people to a new earth, new heaven, new eternity. The rest of the Gospel of Luke is about Jesus' exodus in Jerusalem. You see, if the, if the narrative passage of Exodus in the OT is the greatest there, it simply foreshadows what Jesus did for us. And so we have to just say, if the injunction was God saying, I delivered you and you're my people, therefore you shall have no other gods, we could easily look to the New Testament and say, well, if you have risen with Christ, therefore seek those things above where Christ is. If you belong to him, then what ought your life be? And my prayer has been that our life would be full of faith, Believing that in every trial, God is there even when it doesn't seem like we can see Him exactly. And that we would never say, I want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure. I, I want to follow God no matter what. Which is why then Paul in the New Testament says, and this is where we're going, um, we need to celebrate the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 Paul said to cleanse out the old leaven. Get rid of the old stuff. You got old stuff in your life 
that doesn't belong, get rid of that, that you may be new. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's celebrate the feast, celebrate the festival, which is what we're going to do in communion this morning. And get rid of the old leaven of evil and malice and just eat the new leaven of sincerity and truth. Come to Jesus, and if you've been away from Jesus, the ultimate redeemer, then I just call you to come back today and celebrate the delivery that God brought to us through his son. It's greater than the opening of the Red Sea. Will you pray with me? If you're helping to serve, I'd ask you to come. In a moment, we're going to take communion. The greatest redemptive work of God in all of the Bible is that Jesus sacrificed his life. He became the Passover lamb to open up heaven for us. In his life, he he said, this is my body, which is for you. This cup is the remembrance of a new covenant. And as great as the redemptive work of crossing the Red Sea is, so much greater is it that Jesus was the one sacrificed to lead us out of the slavery of sin into a new life in Christ. So I just ask you to prepare your heart. Is there anything in you today that needs to be turned away from? And you need to say to God, Lord, I I come to you today. Thank you that I belong to you through Christ, and therefore I know my life is for you. So by eating this bread and drinking this cup, I, I renew my covenant commitment to you. And I worship you, the one who was slain, the one who, who freed me from my sin. This is what we pray as we eat and drink today. Lord, be exalted in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we'll distribute the bread to you, and then we'll eat together, and so too with the cup.